close to Glendale, about um, two miles back up into the hills from the Glendale High School. It's owned by American Missionary Fellowship. And a group of free Methodist churches have gotten together and rented that camp. Actually, it's that camp for about 30 years, 25, 30 years. And so we've just adopted that name, Fur Point Camp, for our own camp. So we kind of use it in, in two different expressions. Uh, the camp down there, the, the Free Methodist part, the Southern Oregon Youth Camp is, is the bank name for it, has been in existence for over 60 years. And actually, it started at Fur Point Camp and then uh, went other places for a while and then back at Fur Point for quite a few years. But I felt simply devastated when I heard that the camp was canceled. Um, I directed the camp for quite a few years and just feel like I have a, a real investment in it. And camp is so important for the kids. It, it just builds so much into their lives. Uh, I accepted the Lord at a kid's camp. And there's the obvious of, of being presented with the gospel and that opportunity to accept the Lord and to grow in Him. And, and we have opportunity for kids to be baptized there if their parents are willing. Uh, there's, there's just so much that goes into a kid's life from camp. Um, and then there's the financial implications. Because for our camp... Um, a lot of things have been purchased. Money's been expended already. And we have a little bit of uh, cushion in the treasury, but not a whole lot. So there's some real serious financial implications for camp. And certainly some financial implications for the American Missionary Fellowship because of their camp. Uh, this past week, they canceled their camp. And now this coming week, camp has been canceled, and who knows about the following week, and that has serious financial implications for them. So feeling that devastation that we don't have camp, but on the other hand, I have to admit I was a little bit relieved. Uh, I don't have to go to camp. <laughs> now, usually I'm, I'm really looking forward to it much more than this year. Uh, just, I don't know, I just felt tired. Boy, are we going to go? In fact, Joyce and I didn't even know if we were going to go until about two weeks ago. Uh, we have done the Bible story, and we decided we're not doing that anymore. But they wanted us to be there, so the question was, okay, now what are we going to do there? And they designed some sort of role that I wasn't too certain about. And Anyway, so, so there's those mixed emotions, but at the same time, all of that is in God's hands. And you just have to pray and commit that to Him. And then last weekend, we had this fantastic church camp out, 80-some people there, uh, just having a great time in really good, uh, good weather. And then on Monday, we, we got the news of Craig's death and the implications of that and what all that means. And so we drove home Monday with that on our minds. But even then, all of that is in God's hands. He will have to work through that. He will have to take care of it. But speaking of camp, and I have a reason for showing you some of these, here's some pictures from camp. And I don't know if somebody's going to put some together with, with music, you know, and all those fancy things, but um, here's some just gathered around to go to the next one. Uh, we're getting ready for a meal there, I think, and uh, they brought all the chairs together. Now we're lining up, and it was a big, long line to get in to get some food. 
and then church. And Vance was not preaching. He just happened to be doing some announcements. When I took that picture, um, there was about 75 there Sunday morning for church. And then we did, what did we do? Oh, yeah, we went to the beach Saturday, a great day at the beach. I'd say that less than half of those people were connected with our church that you, that you see in the picture. Uh, it was one of those phenomenal days, a little bit overcast, but not too much. You could usually pick out a shadow. No wind. Now, the temperature in the valley, 85, 90 degrees, but beautiful weather at the coast, no wind. That's a little bit unusual. And part of the thing down there that day was a sandcastle building contest. Now, oh yeah, okay, stop there. Yeah, that other one was Pastor Matt and his family, but stop there for a minute. So these kids and some others built this pretty neat-looking sandcastle, and of course it's down by the water, and the thing about building a sandcastle is pretty soon the waves are going to come up and take it out to see the next one. And here the waves are coming, and they're, they're getting there, and they're starting, and then let's see that next one. And then the waves are clear up around that. But as that was happening, I thought about that little object lesson here with all of this, and that is that sometimes our lives are, are like this castle, and the, the waves of life come and wash around us. But our security is in Jesus. Now, we know that eventually that got washed away, but, but our security is in Jesus as, as the waves of life come up about us, and we stand strong in Jesus. We sang a song just a little while ago, and then it was even mentioned in this last one. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Do you know that's a scripture verse? That comes from Proverbs 18.10 that the Lord is like this strong tower that we can go to when we need him. Well, we can go to him all the time, but especially when, when the, the things of life come and we can go to him and find safety with him. In fact, we can go to him anytime and find comfort in him, find direction, find encouragement, and we're going to do that this morning. But we're going to go to the Lord, go to his word, Look to Jesus, pull out some truths, and then see what he wants to do with those in our lives and make application of them. And to do that, we're going to go to an event that we commonly think of as, as Jesus' first miracle. It happens at a wedding in a, a little village up in Cana in Galilee. Our weddings are fun. They're they're joyful. There are times of celebration, sometimes a little bit of mischief. When Joyce and I were married 47 years, four, one month and four days ago, I just said it that way so you'd know that I really knew the date, there was a lot of mischief going on among our friends, and it, it would take too long to tell you all of the stuff. It would be fun stories, but one of the things that, that I distinctly remember is some of my friends hearing the story and then friends picking it up and, and, and went that simply they would paint help on the bottom of the groom's shoes so that when he kneeled down for prayer, you know, this word help would show up on the bottom of his shoes. And I thought, okay, 
I will check the bottom of my shoes. I forgot. And we're going through the ceremony, and we get to the place where the minister wants us to kneel, and I, oh, no, I forgot to check. Have you ever tried to kneel and keep your soles flat-footed? It, I tell you, it doesn't work. And so I'm kneeling there, and I'm listening for the snickers in the congregation. And I have no clue what the minister prayed. I'm listening for snickers, and I really didn't hear any. Well, come to find out, they did not write help on the bottom of my shoe. All of that worry for nothing. Weddings in Bible times were fun. I don't know if there was any mischief or not, but a wedding went something like this. The festivities took place at, a groom's, at the groom's parents' house. Now, I suppose there was variation, just like we have, we have variations today, but... Um, the bride would arrive sometime during the day and she's accompanied by her attendants and, and the male relatives, friends of the groom, and especially if she comes from another village. So there's big procession of mules and donkeys carrying all of her stuff along with her. And um, they, the, the groom vacates his house at some point in all of this. Uh, he goes to a friend's house. Uh, the bride gets ready while he's over there. Um, they're, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit like the bachelor party. Uh, they're celebrating. Uh, they're talking. Their uh, speeches are made. Poems are read. Uh, telling how great the groom and his family is. It begins to grow dark. That's okay. Because this procession to meet the bride is going to take place at night anyway. Uh, Candles or lamps, torches are lit. The procession makes its way through the streets. People are watching for them to come. Maybe somebody's up on a rooftop. And finally, the, the cry goes out, The groom is coming! The groom is coming! Down at the bride's end, there's some attendants ready with lamps and torches to welcome this procession and take them the last block or whatever it is to the groom's house to meet the bride. Sometimes that um, bachelor's party goes a little bit late, maybe quite late, and eyelids grow heavy and people get tired. Uh, remember the parable that Jesus told about the attendants that were waiting for the groom to come and Five of them were wise and had extra oil for their lamp, and five of them were foolish, and, and they didn't have anything extra. This is the setting for that. So it's, it's gotten late, and, and the groom arrives now, and it's a large group. Uh, it's too many for the house, but the invited guests get to go in, and, and it's okay. The others understand uh, they're not part of that group, and they go home, and they come back the next day. Because the party goes on through the night and the next day and maybe even a couple of days. You know that there was really no actual ceremony where the bride and groom would say, I do. The minister didn't sign some sort of certificate. It just went until finally they decided it was time to quit. Well, that's the occasion. Let's read John chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 11. 
On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let us take a moment and pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege. And we ask, Father, that you be the one to instruct us. Father, in our group this morning, we come with, with many things on our minds and many backgrounds and many questions and, and many places of spiritual maturity. There's things we understand and there's things that we don't understand. But Lord, you know each of us and each of our hearts, and we pray that you are the one that instructs us this morning, that comforts us, that directs us, that speaks to our needs. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some significant things happen here, and we're going to take this and draw out of it some of these things and then apply them to our lives. And the first thing that we recognize here, obviously, is the importance of marriage. Jesus blesses marriage. The first miracle takes place at a wedding. He wasn't there to make the wedding happen. Didn't have anything to do with it. Simply to make it a festive occasion. Now, maybe he was there because one of his disciples, Nicodemus, was from Cana. And maybe this is why Jesus, the disciples, Mary, why they were invited. Uh, maybe Nicodemus was related to somebody in the wedding party or good friends with them or something. It's interesting that we don't know the names of the bride and groom and the fact that we don't know is, is important because it says they're not important to the story. What's important to the story is what Jesus did. But throughout his ministry, Jesus referred to marriage, the sanctity of, of a relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. He, he, we get all through Scripture how important that is. Paul did the same thing in his writings. And all of this tells us that the institution of marriage was important to God. He invented it clear back there at the very beginning. It has a primary place in God's economy for things. It's a place he designed for conceiving and raising children. Uh, it's a place 
for us to go and be safe. Now, I know that it doesn't always work that way. It's supposed to. But it doesn't always work that way because sin distorts it. Sin comes in. There's so many things that sin distorts. The things that God created, Satan just loves to make a counterfeit, loves to distort those to something else. But that's the way that he designed it. But the message this morning is really not about marriage. But I can't ignore that because it's here. We're going to look at some other things. It's a, a setting for us to learn. There's this element, first of all, of expectation. So let's learn the importance of expectation. The festivities proceed and the unthinkable happens. They run out of wine. It's interesting that Jesus' mother goes to him. I don't know, was was she expecting something to happen? She says to him, they ran out of wine. Simple statement. She doesn't uh, tell him to do anything. Just a simple statement about it. Uh, Maybe she was expecting something. He can do something. I I don't know what. Uh, But maybe he can do something. He hadn't done any miracles yet. So I'm not sure if they had a consciousness of Jesus being able to do miracles. What did she know or suspect? I don't know. I, I do know that she knew a lot about Jesus and had been keeping these things in her heart. That's going clear back to his birth. Tells us in Luke, and the, the shepherds came, and there was angels singing out there, and all of these things that she learned about that, and it said she kept them in her heart, and just pondered them, and thinking as, she, as Jesus grew up, she recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, whatever that meant. He was somebody very special, whatever that meant. I'm not sure that she had a full idea of it at that point. But he he was certainly somebody special. Maybe she went to Jesus saying, okay, I know you're somebody special. Now it's the time to do something special. I don't know. But Jesus responds. Now what he says to her isn't harsh. And our English language makes it sound like he's being severe with his mother. But that wasn't the case. It's simply a response like, what can I do about it? But then he adds... My time to bring redemption has not yet come. In other words, he's saying, my time to bring redemption to the world, to save people, to save people from their sin, it it isn't here yet. My time to bring that which will change people from their sinful lifestyle hasn't come yet. See, that's going to be his death on the cross. That's out there in the future yet. We can put it another way, I guess. kind of the, the amplified, amplified version. If, if you want me to save these people from the folly of their poor planning or limited budget, my time to really save people hasn't come yet. Mary doesn't take it as a rebuke. She simply turns to the servants and says, do what he tells you. What's he going to tell them? What does she think he's going to tell them? Again, I don't know. I don't think she knows. But it seems that she expects something is going to happen. Never underestimate the power of expectation. You know, when, when you pray, do you expect something to happen? Or is it just words? I'm just asking God to do 
uh, do this in my life or do this for my friend. I need this. I'm just praying. Or do we expect that something will happen? When we come to church, do we expect a great time of worship? Do we expect God to speak to us? Or do we simply come uh, because uh, it's a habit and I want to see my friends and uh, keep my eternal fire insurance intact. So I don't want God to be mad at me for missing it. Uh, so we're just there. Do we expect God to teach us something from, from the songs, from Scripture, from the message? It can come in a lot of different ways, but God speaks to us as we worship Him. When you read your Bible, do you expect God to speak to you, show you something? Something new for your life? The psalm writer said, I pant with expectation, longing for your commands. He says, I, I, I want you to teach me. I long for some instruction from your word. I want to be obedient. I want to be an obedient follower of you. So teach me so I can grow as a Christian and know what more you want from me. Go to that next slide because it's kind of an interesting one. Uh, are your current expectations holding you back? The fact that you expect so little or the fact that you expect the negative to happen? I know some people say, I, I always think negatively and that way I'm not disappointed. Uh, how about thinking positively? How about thinking that God is going to do something? How about letting our expectations push us forward? Instead of holding us back. Expect God to work. It's called faith. Just a little bit of faith can do great things. Um, the, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to fellow Christians in the city of Colossae. He told them, I have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. In other words, you, you have this hope. You know that God is going to, to bring you to that place of eternal glory in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Expecting those things will happen. We use the word expecting for a pregnant woman. Well, be pregnant with anticipation of what God's going to do. Well, let's learn something else. Let's learn something about being full. Have you ever been full? I mean, really full. You know, you, you simply ate too much, and you're kind of going around saying, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Um, I think we've all been there at one time or another. That Thanksgiving dinner was just so delicious. Our, our stomach's full, but our mouth is still hungry, so we're still trying to put it in. Well, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. But look what they did. They filled them to the brim. Now, that wasn't necessary. Maybe they expected something special. I don't know. Um, but that obedience to the point of fullness gave an added blessing to the day. You see, if they had stopped down, let's say, just a gallon short, in each one, they would have had been, they'd have been six gallons shy of a complete blessing. 
That, that just wouldn't have been quite that much. Well, make this application. We're his vessels. And he wants to work in us. He wants to fill us. Not with food. He doesn't want to fill us with food. He wants to fill us with, with what? With his spirit. Ephesians gives us a list of instructions. And then it says this. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let Him fill you completely. Does He get all of you to fill? Or do you short him just a little bit? Whoa, that's, that's enough, Lord. Uh, I don't want to get too full. I'm, I'm reserving a little bit of me for myself. I'm reserving a little bit of me so I can party when I want to. So I can have this kind of fun when I want to. So I can do... Or do we let him fill us up completely? Well, the lack of blessing in our lives is often the result of our resistance to God. So open the neck of your jar, well, the neck of your life, however that works there. Open it up. Let Him fill you to the brim with His Spirit, with His blessing, with His healing, with His forgiveness, with whatever it is that you need in your life. Let's go to another one. Let's learn what He made. Now, I don't mean the fact that he made wine. Now, in our evangelical tradition, we get all tight about, was this really wine or was it grape juice? And, and I don't really care what it was. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus made wine and that he drank wine and that they drank wine in the Bible. But, you know, we have to be careful of taking that and running with it. Because just because they did something in the Bible, we have to be careful of saying, okay, it's all right that, that I can do it because they did it in the Bible. Because if we're going to do the things just because they did it in the Bible, be prepared to change some of the things that you do. You know, like lay down when you eat and eat with your fingers and have all the ladies sit in the back of the congregation because that's what they did. Or be prepared to wash your guests' feet when they come to your house. Or don't have wedding vows. Just have a commitment banquet and then move in together. What was it that Jesus made? He made quality. He made the very best. You remember that phrase, God don't make no junk? Well... This is true right here. When we allow him to work, to make something of us, he's going to do it good. Now, what did he make it out of? And this is the exciting part. What did he make all that out of? He made it out of the ordinary. The common, ordinary water he turned into the very best stuff. Think about that. God can take mud and make a human being. 
He can take a disaster and make a blessing. He can take a heartache and make a pathway. He can take the ordinary and make it the very best there is. You've heard of the guy Dwight L. Moody? No, great preacher, Moody Bible Institute, named after him and so on. Uh, Moody was born to a large family. His father was an alcoholic. Father died when Moody was four years old. Family was too big, no money, too many mouths to feed. So he was sent off to work for his room and board. And he was fed cornmeal, mush, and milk three times a day. Well, he got kind of tired of that, and he found his mom and complained. And when she found out that he got all that he could eat of that, she sent him back. He's getting plenty to eat. As a teenager, he worked in his uncle's shoe store, and he became a Christian. After becoming a Christian, he thought he should be a member of the church, so he applied. They had this process where you apply for membership. They have a membership committee that would decide if you were worthy to be a member, and he was denied membership. Uh, Edward Kimball was the person that led him to the Lord, and he said, I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his. And then about the membership committee, as they're talking, he says, the, the membership committee has seldom met an applicant for membership, more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. Well, that didn't destroy Moody. He persevered. He wanted to be used by God. He wanted to do something, and so he started a Sunday school. It was just in a little old shanty. In fact, it used to be a tavern. Now it was simply run down. Uh, a person went by or visited, saw him trying to read the story of the prodigal son to the children there, and he couldn't even pronounce all the words. And that person said, if the Lord can ever use such an instrument of that for his honor and glory, it will astonish me. But in a year, that Sunday school had over 600 people. And then there was a church. And then there was a school. And Dwight Moody preached around the world, and thousands, maybe tens of thousands, became followers of Jesus because of this ordinary guy. Can the Lord take the ordinary and make something great? You bet he can. Consider Saul. Now, we know him as Paul, but the Acts describe what happened right after he became a follower of Jesus. Now, you know, he'd been persecuting those who followed Jesus, and now he became one of them. And it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. God was able to take him from way over here to over here, from a persecutor of Jesus to not only a follower of Jesus, but a leader of the followers of Jesus. Consider Peter. 
Just a fisherman had trouble saying the right thing at the right time. Peter is known for sticking his foot in his mouth every time he opened it. Becoming a leading disciple. In fact, two books in the New Testament are letters that he wrote. But let me mention another. Consider Pastor Matt and Pastor Caleb. Now, I don't know about being the ordinary because they are kind of extraordinary people. But I know that they didn't start from royal beginnings. But more important, they're in their positions for God to make them the very best. God has called them, has put his hand upon their lives and said, Go, walk with me, follow me. And so it's going to be a blessing to see what God will make of them as they grow. And we get to help in that process. We get to pray for them and we get to encourage them with spoken words and notes that we send to them. We get to watch as the Lord leads them and we get to let the Lord lead them. Isn't that exciting? Okay, now let's take the focus off them. Put it back on each of us. He made the common, ordinary, just water, into the very best. Don't try to turn wine back into wine. Don't, don't take what he's done and trying to do in your life and, and reverse it and go backwards. Let God do what he wants to do in his life. Stick with him and grow and keep going and maturing. And I'm going to give you a chance to focus on that. We come to this time we call Selah. And we have communion set up here with the elements. And in a minute you'll have opportunity to come and partake. And then you have opportunity to pray at the 